Welcome to You Talking with Greg. I'm here with Stephen Bacon, a good friend of mine, a psychotherapist, a deep thinker, who has a fascinating take on what psychotherapy might be in terms of creating a constructive reality with our clients, the essence of that, how we might cultivate that, and what that means for the field. It's really a lot of profound implications. We'll get into that, but first, let's welcome. Hey, Stephen, how are you? I'm doing great, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm really excited for us to dialogue today because I think you have um, a really important perspective that the field has some difficulty digesting, perhaps, and we'll get into that. Um, But first, let's give the folks a little bit of background, uh, kind of who you are and how you got here and uh, whatever else you might want to share about your narrative, just to set the stage so we can then dive into this topic. Sure, I'll give you the brief bio. Uh, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, I'm writing books, conducting workshops about a different angle on psychotherapy, what you've already referred to. My background is kind of similar to some of your last couple of guests, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. In my 20s, before I finished, I spent six years in a yoga ashram studying a lot of Eastern thought, which was very influential, and I continue to be grateful. And then I went back to university and uh, got a degree in in psychology, but also a double major in phenomenology of religion and was pretty lucky with the uh, department I study with a lot of really good professors that kind of broadened my view of everything mm. and went to regular graduate school in clinical psychology mm-hmm. and uh, had one other chapter which was for years I was involved in adventure-based education hmm. uh, sometimes called experiential education mm-hmm. it was with an organization called Outward Bound Okay. Which, uh, sort of was the the big daddy of a lot of the adventure based mm. experiences that are so prevalent now, mm-hmm. and that was really important part of my life as well. Was oh. I I worked with them as a field instructor, and later I became vice president for program design and research. Okay. Wrote a book in oh. the area, bunch of articles, and in fact the. The articles and book I wrote there, which were many years ago, uh-huh. are probably more cited than anything I write about psychotherapy. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. And what, uh, can you summarize some of your lessons or what you were communicating about that work? Uh, the most simple idea, when you're doing adventure-based education, whether you're climbing mountains or running whitewater or navigating and in the mountains and all that kind of stuff. Every adventure is seen as a metaphor Ah. for something in regular life. And they have two goals. The first goal, of course, is they create an altered state experience because Mm -hmm. you get dropped in a wilderness setting and have experiences that are pretty unique that most of the students had never had. And this isn't just the classic teenagers. It was done with cancer survivors, alcoholics, hmm. business people. So the model was used in a lot of target populations. Mm-hmm. And it is very reliable in terms of generating a powerful altered state effect of empowerment, mm-hmm. usually mixed with a lot of uh, connectedness 
in mm. terms of the team and the small group. Right. So it's sort of a very generically powerful positive experience, but naturally all of their concerns are how well will it transfer to the real world uh -huh, uh -huh. and how good is uh -huh. the same power. So you can generate the high level, you know, epiphany yep. or, uh -huh. but does it last? Is it useful? Uh -huh. Does it generalize? Okay. And so that's what I was writing about a okay. lot. Uh -huh. And uh, the concept of the metaphor was uh, central. Fascinating. To what, uh, huh. Well, actually, you're right. I didn't know that about you. That, I mean, I'd heard you mention that, but I didn't, uh, I don't think I digested it. Uh, um, I certainly see some potential parallels or insights that would be afforded for you as you went through that and then are looking at the lens of psychotherapy. Uh, you said that was pretty influential for you in terms of how you thought about human change or the ways in which we can construct environments that cultivate uh, transformation. Yeah, that whole experience in those days, uh, there was a, there was, it was sort of the birth of the, uh, in the West, right with the hippies, mm -hmm. you know, Gary Snyder, the beat poets, the mountains speak for themselves. If you go out into nature, it's going to become your teacher. Mm -hmm. The 70s, when I was involved in the early 80s, was kind of the key moment when all that was happening. And so it was implicitly a spiritual experience as well as a personal growth experience as well. And nowadays it's become ubiquitous and like it's useful still. And, but you pretty much any private school and lots of treatment programs will do spinoff programs based on the original outward bound model. Mm. And so even though it's still seen as very helpful, it doesn't have that fresh transformative mm. thing that it did when it first got here right. in the 60s and early 70s when I started to work with it. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then you became more full-time psychotherapy? Is that, and that's what you... Right. Full-time psychotherapy. And... Uh, what does your practice look like, just out of curiosity? What? I just have a general private okay. practice where uh -huh. I see... Adults, mostly couples, groups children uh i do all of that except for not individual therapy with little kids okay i do family therapy that includes little kids but i do group therapy couples therapy mm -hmm. remember part of the research is that specialization doesn't actually make you better <laughs> right well we'll get into that right no, there, there, there are a lot of secrets we're about ready to unfold folks in relationship to the behind the scenes world of psychotherapy and what research says about expertise, about training and, and those kinds of issues. So how uh, fast your seatbelt will hold some of the excitement. So the listeners will be piling in and ready. Um, but in terms of how long have you been, been practicing as uh, doing the psychotherapy as a prior? Uh, let's see. Since the early eighties is when I got. Oh, license. really? Okay. So you've been, okay. I, I'm an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't feel, you don't feel it, Stephen. You feel cutting yeah, edge. But I mean, that's 40 years ago. I mean, yeah, that is a long time. 40 years ago, man, that's kind of a long time. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Do you have any particular kind of um, presenting problem or mode of therapy that you feel uh, you feel particularly drawn to? Or does it really, each one is pretty new and you know, wait and see what gets constructed in that context? Yeah, I think that's part of the whole idea is that you wouldn't have 
a specialization in problems or a particular mode. Right. And so it, it's a very fluid thing about responding to the client. Look, lots of people say that. And of course, mm -hmm. I join the chorus of that is that it's psychotherapy is an individual practice. Mm -hmm. But because of the way that I integrate the Eastern stuff with their research and the studies in constructionism and phenomenology of religion, it's a little more fluid mm -hmm. than we call constructed reality. And that's what's uh, unique about my practice. Right. But looked at from the outside, mm -hmm. uh, some people might say, well, you did this just like another therapist. Yeah. Uh, but talking about how and why is where you get to the difference. Right. Well, I think this is enough ground then for us to then dive in to what you, how you might describe your approach as a, you know, working with constructed reality. Um, yeah, let's sort of take, sort of say, hey, Stephen, what's your theoretical orientation uh, for the work? Uh, how about we uh, dive in there and then we'll also then see where that is justified based on the literature, because that's a whole nother world in terms of your, your, your approach and then the implications that your approach has or the claims that you make about, hey, I train people to become doctors and I'm, I'm glad that every year I train them, they're going to get better and better because of all that work, right, Stephen? Right. <laughs> Just tell me that's true. I need to be validated. <laughs> well, training is a very sore subject in psychotherapy. <laughs> as well, right. As it should be probably more sore than it is. I think people engage in a lot of denial. Um, but let's talk about your orientation first, and then let's get into the heated issue about whether expertise actually matters. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to do it in reverse because oh, okay. mm -hmm. I find that people, if you start with the orientation, it doesn't work as well as starting with the research. Okay. Mm -hmm. So with Fine. your you permission, totally. I'm going to start uh, there. Uh, listen, it's your context. I'll follow your lead and we'll co-create this together. So go ahead. Okay. So I'm not going to do a full research, uh, research review. Mm -hmm. I'm going to just hit the highlights. Yep. Anybody who wants to can go to either my YouTube video channel or my website and get the articles and the citations that back this up. But let's do this in kind of a common sense sort of way. Yep. So we're all available, we're all aware in the psychotherapy field that the first question for psychotherapy is, does it work? And that took, you know, two or three decades mm -hmm. before we had a solid answer about that. And we finally got a solid answer that says, yes, psychotherapy works. It has an average effect size of 0.8 which translates to 80% of the people in treatment are better than the people on a waiting list control group. Yep. That's great. And that's been very helpful to have that document. Pretty robust finding, I would say. Yeah, I would say that. It, it's equivalent to a lot of medical interventions, mm -hmm. surgical interventions, and it's solid and it's been replicated. Right, right. I mean, and I mean that in both senses that it's a legitimate and significant, clinically significant, meaningful shift to get a 0.8 shift. And it's been found in a number of different contexts. So you can say it with a fair amount of confidence. Absolutely. Then our next question was, how does it work? Yeah. <laughs> that would make sense, right? And so they came up with a very thoughtful uh, set of ideas which said there are common factors to every approach and specific factors. Mm -hmm. Common factors 
and to every approach means like psychodynamic, CBT systems and so forth. So the common factors are mostly defined as a relationship with a wise and caring person. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. There's other definitions of common that's, factors. I agree with you. That that is. That's the simplest one. Yep. And then the specific factors, of course, are the unique techniques and the systems underlying them mm-hmm. that uniquely contribute. So every system shares the common factors, but they're different with the specific factors. Yep. And then, of course, everybody wanted to prove that their system was better. And that led to the so-called dodo bird finding, mm-hmm. which was, as we looked at it carefully, it appeared that although every system has a positive effect, that 0.8 finding, none of them are better than the others. Mm-hmm. They get equivalent positive effects. Now, the dodo bird finding is the death knell for specific factors. And that's because, I know this is all common sense, but this is review. That's because it makes no sense that systems of vast differences between the way they conceptualize psychopathology and the really different techniques they use shouldn't get the exact same effects on us. One of those systems should have more of a handle on how things really are, and their approach and techniques should be better than some other systems. Yep. When you get the idea that they're all the same, it suggests that there are no specific factors and only common factors. Mm-hmm. Now that is a devastating conclusion. Right, hold on one second, I'm hearing, a. Uh, oh, maybe it just went away. Uh, yeah, it just went away, sorry That's about right. Yep. Uh, so yes, so the, just because it's a really important point. So if you could say that point again in terms of the devastation, if we find that there are, you know, if we find these common factors, get the point A finding across these different domains, then the specific referent of the techniques on interventions for particular problems as being curative falls, well, becomes enormously placed under consideration, considerable doubt and maybe basically is, you know, Obviously, you could wonder about certain particular instances, maybe, but at the general conclusion level, you have to kind of come to the conclusion of, hmm, there's not a lot of impact for specific interventions operating in particular problems based in particular schools of thought. Because if there were, something would be better and something would be worse. Mm -hmm. And that's the essence of the argument. So naturally, the Dodo Bird conclusion was viciously attacked. Mm -hmm because it pretty much had to be if you believe in techniques. And pretty much everybody in our field believes in techniques. Every time you take a workshop to learn a new system or learn new techniques. And even more than that, training in general. But I'll get to that in a second. Let's just stay with the techniques. Right, we'll stay with the techniques. Yeah. So there was a big counterattack. And the counterattack had two main thrusts to it. The first thrust is the specific factor adherence basically said, look at all these studies that show that one technique is better than another. I know you think that in the meta-analyses, they all cancel each other out, but really we don't think so. Mm -hmm. In addition, when we do dismembering studies, Mm -hmm. which try to look at the percent 
of the variance of the effect size, the number that is usually attributed to specific factors is 15% of the effect size is due to specific factors. That was the main attack on the dodo bird. Yep. And the common factors adherents fired back with, hey, don't you realize that a lot of these studies that show these superiorities were badly done mm. and there was an enormous factor of alignment, right. which is so many of these studies were done by people that favored one over the other. Right. And so the people believe more, for example, in CBT than mm -hmm. psychodynamic. And so we, anyway, the two groups never resolved it. They're still fighting it out. And the field as a whole has adapted this stalemate as common factors are super important, mm -hmm. but specific factors still matter. Mm -hmm. And let's keep looking because maybe we'll find this specific factor for this diagnosis for this person and this I will confirm that that is a that is a good summary of where the field training wise and the sort of the ethos that it tries to communicate that is a good summary I would say right so there's our stalemate right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's all around dodo bird and supporting and okay so my work starts with an attempt to resolve the stalemate and the resolution is not, frankly, very hard to figure out. It's very common sense. I was sort of surprised that even though people had seen some of this stuff, they never said literally it resolves dodo bird. But anyway, I'll tell you what it is. It's very simple and it's very common sense. The idea is that trained people know more techniques and know them better than untrained people. Mm -hmm. So if techniques have innate power, training, trained people should have better mm -hmm. outcomes than mm -hmm. untrained people. Mm -hmm. That's pretty common sense. <laughs> That's very common sense. The second one, which is just as common sense, maybe a little less direct, is that experienced people who know more techniques than inexperienced therapists and have practiced them more assiduously ought to be better than the less experienced. Mm -hmm. If techniques have inherent power, mm -hmm. the experienced should best the inexperienced and the trained should best the untrained. It's very common sense. And if that comes out that, experience, that we have experience and training effects mm -hmm. on outcomes, then the common factors people will have to fold their tent Mm. and admit that there are specific factors. Conversely, if we don't have any mm -hmm. training and experience effects, the specific factor people should fold their tents. Mm -hmm. All very straightforward. I would agree. I'm following the basic logic here. Yeah. And frankly, what's surprising here, even though there are lots of people who've said there's trouble with our training effects or trouble with our experience effects, in all my literature review, I've never read anybody that says this is the resolution of Dodo. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that other people have thought of it. You can mm -hmm. see it's very simple-minded. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mostly was kind of shocked how simple-minded mm -hmm. these arguments are, mm -hmm. that they hadn't met apply. Mm -hmm. Everybody was arguing about the quality of the experimental design mm -hmm. and alignment and et cetera, et cetera. 
which is really complicated. Mm, yes. And a lot of really smart people have spent a lot of time <laughs> writing articles about that. <laughs> this is not very complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So here's the part where you can look at the details of the literature review either on my website, drstephenbacon.com. That's mm -hmm. Dr. Stephen with a PH Bacon. Yep. We'll probably have it at the end on, underneath. Yes, we can make sure we do. Right. Or I have a YouTube channel that has all this in YouTube videos. Mm. So basically, let's look first at the training effects. Because okay. the training effects are the most pure version. Because obviously, trained people know techniques and untrained people don't. Mm -hmm. Trained That's people know uh, what's called psychology's privileged knowledge. Mm -hmm. I want to define that for a second. Okay. Privileged knowledge is the knowledge that's owned by a profession that we uniquely own, that you have to master, at least the basics you have to master to be a competent professional practitioner. Oh. For us, that's all the stuff we learn in graduate school. Mm -hmm. Schools of therapy, the history of psychology, all the techniques. Techniques are a part of it, but privileged knowledge goes into the diagnostic categories, client right. characteristics. All mm -hmm. that privilege. All that, if you're outside of it, hey, what's all that psychobabble jargon? It's like, there you go. <laughs> right. That's privileged knowledge. And the techniques are a subset of that. So trained people know both privileged knowledge and more techniques. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that as we go through this. Right. Okay. So we only have two studies where we train, where we compare trained people to the untrained. The first one is a very famous one by Stroop and Hadley, mm -hmm. where they compared college professors who got above average ratings from their students with licensed mental health people. Mm -hmm. They did therapy on what's called normal neurotics, mm -hmm. and the college professors got the same positive right. outcome as mm -hmm. the licensed professionals. Yep. That was upsetting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't <laughs> and uh i often sit there and say to people how many replications of that would you need before you really started questioning the value of training mm -hmm. but we only have one replication and that replication is done by anderson and six other people i just call it anderson and all okay and they compared fourth year clinical grad students clinical psych grad students with fourth year graduate students in history and biology did the same thing normal neurotics psychotherapy the groups got the same positive outcome no difference between so only one replication but pretty recent i think it was 2017 maybe 2016 so and it's the first replication that i know of and those are the only two studies that compare trained with untrained. Mm -hmm. They both come out the same way. No evidence that training contributes to enhanced outcomes. Mm -hmm. okay. But fortunately, we have another literature called the paraprofessional literature. Mm -hmm. And paraprofessionals, of course, are people that have virtually no training. Right. Some of them are college graduates, in everything from history to sociology who just go to work at a treatment center as psych techs. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And some of them are recovering alcoholics, again, with little or no training. Mm -hmm. We have lots and lots of studies on how well therapy by paraprofessionals compares with therapy with licensed professionals. Mm -hmm. So this would be almost no training compared to full training. Right. And we don't have two studies. We have like, I don't know, 90 or 100 studies. It's three major meta-analyses. And what's interesting is two of them said that the paraprofessionals were as good as the licensed professionals. Mm -hmm. And the third meta-analysis said paraprofessionals were better than the licensed professionals. Really embarrassing. Mm. So that paraprofessional literature is really compelling because it's not two studies. It's over 100 studies Mm -hmm. and three major meta-analyses. That one has never been refuted. It's been replicated uh, in a variety of other ways, which again, I have on the website. And we should pretty much take it as a given that all of those studies said that trained people are not, there's no solid evidence that they're better than untrained people, even though they know techniques and even though they know psychology's privileged knowledge. All right. There is a little bit of other evidence coming from Scott Miller and his, he calls it the leaky balloon thesis. Okay. What he did is he did studies that show that the longer a person practices, there's a mild degradation in your results. Hmm. He says it's like air slowly leaking out of a balloon. Okay. So that we get where our peak performance right after we get out of graduate school Hmm. and then we gradually. But I've looked at his evidence. It's pretty weak, Mm -hmm. but it's not in the direction of training merits. mildly in the dire- in the other direction just like that paraprofessional study right right okay so when you also look at all the studies which are not very many we're all aware that there's a difference in training for master's level people and doctoral level people and so you would hope that the doctoral level people are getting better results than the master's level people mm-hmm. to put this in context Physician assistants who are required to practice under the supervision of medical doctors, especially boarded medical doctors, it's about the same difference in training. And uh, in medicine, it's considered very substantial difference. Mm. You want to work with a PA who's working with a boarded mm-hmm. physician. Okay. But there is no evidence whatsoever that PhDs are better than master's level right. therapists. So that's kind of the end of the training literature. (sighs) Now we gallop into the experience literature, which is way easier because all you have to do to measure experience in in all of these studies, you just put a question, how many years have you been practicing? Mm -hmm. And then you tend to, you can look at it with thousands of studies Mm -hmm. and All the meta-analyses starting back with Smith and Glass Mm. show zero correlation between experience and outcome. Mm -hmm. And that's been not just the old meta-analyses, it's been replicated all the way to the new ones. Mm -hmm. And um, 
now we're not talking about two studies or even a hundred studies. Now we're talking about a thousand studies that show and literally an N that should be able to pick up even small changes. You know, we're all very familiar with large Ns can show significance for things that, effects that exist, but are not clinically significant because they're too small. Mm -hmm. This one doesn't even show. <laughs> doesn't small. even register on the radar. <laughs> It is uh, really right, so actually, can we pause for a second? Because when I reviewed this literature, uh, and actually I went back to it after you and I first met, you know, and I went back to some of your stuff. I was aware of this, uh, but I, you know, I'm not the only person that engages in comfortable denial. <laughs> um, but then after you and I talked, I had to go back and redigest. So, so psychotherapists out there, especially if like, oh my God, I need more CEU so I can get better. <laughs> So we should all take a deep breath. I'm a trainer, folks. I have to look in the mirror as a trainer of doctoral studies. And I've known, I tell all my doc students about this, by the way. I'm not like, I don't hide this. I feel like the field, um, you know, the dissonance of this is significant for the field. Okay. So I, that's why I'm really glad Stephen's here. I think the field is this something the field has got to wrestle with. And I don't think we have wrestled with it with a level of, you know, I don't think it's, you know, we're doing sort of integrity justice um, relative to how much we ignore this dynamic. So I just need to say that as a professional. And I appreciate that. And uh, obviously I could wax eloquent about the denial of the field, but I'm not going to because- No, I'll, I'll, do, I'll play that role. And I'm an insider, <laughs> although I've obviously, I also sit on a goddamn shaman on the hill dynamic. I have my own issues with the field. So I'm not like situated in its convention in a particular way that gives me a little dissonance protection. Um, but as a trainer of psychotherapists in doctoral level programs, although I- really emphasize that we do a lot more than that. And God only knows if that makes a difference, but at least I can sit in denial in relation. Um, but anyway, it's a big, it's a big deal and a complicated one. Uh, and you're doing very important common sense work that actually really, if we have integrity, got to look at straight in the eye. So, Well, it's one thing to sit there and say, this suggests that there's no inherent power in techniques. But when you think about it, it also suggests that all of psychotherapy's privileged knowledge is also unrelated to outcomes. And that's even a pill that's harder to swallow. Yep. So you have put it very well. This is a dissonant finding and we have to integrate it. Very fortunately, we have a pre-existing theory that explains this in a way that makes perfect sense. And, uh, I use Berger and Luckman's theory, even though they're not the only ones who've said it, but I think they did a very nice job articulating it. Back in 1966, when they wrote their little masterpiece, Social Construction of Reality. I was just reading it, that actually today for unrelated reasons. I um, think synchronicity. that's... Synchronicity. <laughs> yeah, that is synchronicity. So they spent some time saying that every culture has to deal with the fact that human suffering exists. And you can't have a culture without human suffering. And so you have to have a mechanism or a profession that deals with these people that are suffering 
they use another word called deviant because in addition to suffering, they said certain people won't get with the program. They won't join up and see reality the way everybody else does. So they kind of use deviancy and human suffering a little bit synonymously. But their main theory is very simple. They said human suffering is real, but the explanation for the suffering is constructed by the culture and the cure for the suffering, the interventions, is also constructed. Okay. So every human being is born to suffer, not a very hard thing to believe, but they explain why I'm suffering in the language of their culture and their worldview, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they are amenable to being healed of that mm -hmm. suffering by the culturally prescribed methods of healing. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole theory about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, the quick summary of mm -hmm. uh, Berger and Luckman. Yep. The reason that's relevant to these findings about training and experience and common factors and so forth is because they obviously are saying that mental health models are constructed. Mm -hmm. So for example, and it's a little easier to see this with another culture. Imagine we have another culture that believes that mental health problems are because of possession by malevolent spirits. Mm -hmm. And that's why people suffer. Mm -hmm. And the way to get past the suffering is to figure out what kind of spirit is and then apply the exorcism that is appropriate for that spirit. Okay. The spirit will partly or fully leave. You'll be better and you go on with your life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Western thinkers, and especially Western psychotherapy professionals, are perfectly happy with the idea that there are plenty of other cultures with other mental health models. Mm -hmm. And they see this stuff, of course, as suggestions, belief, placebo, and expectancies. Mm -hmm. And they say, of course, the shaman were treating mental health problems, and of course, people got better. Right. Because look at placebo beliefs and expectancies. Mm -hmm. But we're going to be different because we're going to apply science. Mm. And this is where, of course, you come in because your whole you talk critique of different mm -hmm. models of thinking. Right. But, right. Just so people write. So I'm basically saying that we, we tried to ground out in an ontology we failed and then we ground out in a methodology. So we now rely it really on what we really are relying on is the method of science to validate our findings, not clarity about what we mean by the mental or the ontology of human persons per se. Um, that's what Utah says. So this yeah. is where you and I have a lot of overlap in terms of in synergy in relation, um, because yeah. actually, uh, although we'll may disagree on aspect of psychotherapy down the road, although I am in your camp up to this point completely. <laughs> well, so far, this part is pretty common sense. Yeah. And most people that I talk to about this say, of course, the other cultures have a mental health model. And of course, but now we get to the main point where the field starts disagreeing. Right. Because if you apply Berger and Luckman to our model, mm -hmm. And our model, of course, isn't spirit possession. Our model is some version of having mental illness or psychopathology is like having a disease. Mm -hmm. 
is basically the way that we think about it. You can elaborate it, you can go from some different angles, but that's a simple way to put it down. And in our culture, we really believe that mental health is like having a disease. It's not like being possessed by a spirit. Right. So, but if Berger and Luckman are correct, I'm gonna stay with the spirit thing for a second. Mm -hmm. Then what we've been studying about in psychotherapy is the nature of the spirits mm. and the different techniques that get rid of spirits. Mm. And we've been catalyzing, categorizing types of spirits. And that's what psychotherapy and our privileged knowledge has been doing. Mm. And that's why it's unrelated outcome. Mm -hmm. So now that is a really shocking radical statement mm -hmm. that we've been spending all our time really talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Right. The ontology is vacuous. <laughs> yeah. And on that level, you talk is extremely helpful because you have this different differentiation between methodology and ontology that is so helpful where I like the Berger and Lechman part is that it really gives you a feeling for it doesn't make any sense that all these smart people have been doing all these research studies and writing all these books and thinking it through and people get better and really is all this been just imagining what kind of spirits possess us? That just feels so wrong. I got to go tilt. But that is what the research is implying. If when you say it the way you say it and you talk, which I believe is a great way to say it, but I don't think it has the emotional impact. No, it doesn't. Um, it, it, it says the same thing, but you have to be really high end to really in your gut yeah. feel like. Well, yeah. I'm also, as you critique me, and, and I'm and I'm split about this, but I'm and this is something I do want to talk to, to, to you about. Um, I do see a potential pathway to salvage aspects of the current structure. And we okay. we should talk about that, but let's go a little farther down this road. Yes, yes. No, I'm just saying that that no, part I of my, to, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah, I totally want to go there. But what people always Okay, so when I do workshops, quite frankly, a lot of people stop here mm -hmm. because it's very hard to digest. Mm -hmm. But let's keep going. Mm -hmm. Let's just pretend that everybody in this workshop accepts that techniques have no inherent power and psychotherapy's privileged knowledge. Well, and let me let me put a little bit of real experience experience on this okay when you ask me i'm a very i'm an established clinician okay and i do have particular kinds of uh, charismatic modes of operating that seem to be pretty effective okay um and i and i'm relatively systematic and i'm thinking okay so the and in other words these bring all the psychological doctor expertise knowledge uh, and there are things i'm going to want to hold on to in relationship to this but i will also say this every therapy still to this day is a, you enter into an individual, unique, 
co-constructive space. Right. You know, that is like, that doesn't generalize or, or the, a lot of the richness, the meaning of it, there are other than the common factors, other than the, hey, does he like you? Does he trust you? Does he believe in what you're saying? Is he invested in it? Does it give him hope? These are all the container factors. Yes. And, and as long as you had checked those boxes, then the nature of the actual healing really is very ideographic and contextual and reconstrued in the moment of the two subjects getting together and saying, oh, this is what my dad meant when he said this. And now I get to come to terms with that. Well, okay, am I going to apply that to the next person? I'm going to really pay attention to what their dad said. No, the dad's not relevant. It was this high school event that happened. Or, oh, no, it's not this. It's God's relationship to them. Oh, no, it's not. The, you know, And it's right. over and over again, these idiosyncratic meaning-making construals that have certain kinds of themes that we can get into, but they really are you know, these unique, particular, intuitive, folk psychological, reconstructive, oh, this is what my suffering is, and this is what it means. There is a really a lot of truth to that, um, folks, when you really pay attention to psychotherapy. And then you ask, well, what's the technical knowledge that then generalizes to the other person outside of the common factor angle? Not a lot, potentially. So there really is something to be said and seen for this perspective at from a rich theory, therapeutic, person who sits in these kinds of processes for a long time you can describe it that way that's for sure yeah well that's it that's a good summary and i appreciate uh that angle on it so anyway go ahead so proceed okay moving first so the question i usually ask people next is let's pretend we're exorcists in that culture Mm -hmm. that believes but let's pretend that you and i are enlightened and we know that the spirits are constructs mm-hmm. and we know that the exorcisms are rituals. Mm-hmm. What edge does that give us over the standard exorcist? Mm-hmm. Now, if, if there's an edge there, if we can talk about the edge, that might actually let us create a training effect. Mm-hmm. And if we talk about the edge, we might get better at that edge, which would create an experience effect. Because mm-hmm. wouldn't psychotherapy like to have training effects and experience effects? Mm-hmm. If you said that's the definition of an actual profession, mm-hmm. that it can create training and experience effects, that should be our quest right now. Yes. So it's... And I'll pause you right there and say that we there is a potential for this if we look at individual differences in therapeutic outcomes, meaning that everybody, every therapist does not get the same effect. Right. We're all very aware that some people are superior, some average, and some below average. Well, right. Some of the listeners may not be aware of that. So that I want to make them... Okay, that sounds that great. That there's a, and the second thing we should say about that is we've done the obvious stuff, which is we identified our superior therapist and we asked them how they got there and we tried to codify what they told us, how they achieved their better results. And guess what? None of that made us superior. Yeah, I think they build a, they're right. There's a co-constructed narrative about how they got there, whether that corresponds to reality or not. Not much evidence. They couldn't tell us how they did it in a way that let us emulate their results. And that's what everybody says. And we should have been able to. And if you think about it, that is a big clue. Because it means that even the superior people are still inside of a reality where they think they can articulate 
and explain their results by what they did and not who they are. Yep. And you read tons of stuff by these superior therapists where they try to teach you what they did mm-hmm. and they crash and burn. And we know these are really gifted people because right. when you measure their results, they're better than us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they are as deluded about how they did it as we are about how they did it, which is pretty interesting. Very. And actually kind of supports through the back door, the Berger and Lechman idea. Because if you ask gifted exorcists, Mm -hmm. they would give you a big rap about, here's how they identify the the spirit and here's why this exorcism is better than that. And they are getting better results than the average exorcist but that ain't going to help anybody right better so let me give a I'll give folks another potential angle that might be useful at least in sense making here so my friend john verbeke cognitive scientist uh organizes knowledge kinds of knowledge into four different p's you know the four p framework for knowledge uh, one of which is propositional that's language-based knowing that something is true in a semantic sense uh, one of which is perspectival, that's seeing a landscape and being able to pick it out, you know, most commonly associated with the integration of your uh, perceptual senses. Um, another's procedural, that's following particular specific recipes to achieve a power or a skill. And then the final is a participatory one, which he thinks grounds everything, but it's most, it's in some ways the most ambiguous, it's most generalizable. It's a feeling for the identity of the organism or the agent and the arena relationship. Um, so this is sort of an intuitive capacity to play jazz in a particular context. Okay? Nice. Uh, and, and it is that ability to sort of sense the identity of one's role in context to another in a situation and play that out spontaneously, impromptu, et cetera, and know how to find the flow in that rela- participatory relation. Now, if we were to listen to this, one way I hear this is like, hey, psychotherapy is trying to get these procedures down to change people in particular ways, okay, yet an enormous amount of it is a contextual participatory relational nuance that finds itself specified really in the ideographic context, not the generalizable procedures that you can then try to teach somebody about how to do it. It's actually in the intuitive nuance of the particular context that you want to be attending to. So it's 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 the ability to go in there and participate nuance wise And if you ever try to explain somebody like how to engage in social skills through procedure, like look them in the eye and then nod and then keep the right distance, you turn it into procedure and you will not generally get very gifted participators in the social dynamic relational world. Um, So I'll just offer that when I heard his categories there and thought about this, I was like, I wonder if there's a participatory, intuitive, contextual, dynamic intelligence, charisma that people have and are able to pick up on. Um, even though as they try to codify it in procedural knowledge, but these are basically codifying the spirits, as it were. Yeah, that is exactly right. And we should add that the procedural stuff, techniques, work in all the professions that are connected to fundamental reality. You know, chemistry, you know, physics, engineering. And so when we get the kind of realities mixed up, that's where we go astray. And so you've done it by Verveke's four categories of knowing or knowledge, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, I think, very helpful. 
at least provides a framework for sense making here in terms of what how to categorize what we're saying. Because uh, uh, if you think that you've learned in all these techniques and that's why you're going to school and then you hear this stuff, it is like, well, how do I believe that? It's like, well, actually, there are a lot of different angles, even first off, the common sense way you laid it out. And I've worked on really trying to internalize why I believe this actually makes sense. So. Yeah, I like that one. Okay, so let's go back to being enlightened exorcists. Yep. So you and I are enlightened and we're chatting with each other. Mm -hmm. Now we've got to keep doing exorcisms because that's what everybody expects in our culture. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to change that. But we're chatting and we're going to say, how are we going to have an edge over all these people who still believe in the spirits and the exorcisms? So I'm going to kind of walk down some ideas and then I'm going to invite you to add any ones that appeal to you but I'll kind of start off. So one of the first ideas is kind of obvious is we have to identify what bad spirit is possessing that person. Mm-hmm. And now that we know that the spirits are a construct, we're going to be basing the spirit on, we're going to tell them it's the least bad spirit and the mm-hmm. easiest one to get rid of. <laughs> Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Assuming he can buy it, he or Got she. It. Right, right. Because the second thing that occurs to us, all the other exorcists are putting all this energy out about what kind of spirit is it and what kind of exorcism and how careful do I have to do with we don't have to put any energy into that because we know all that's construction. Mm-hmm. All we're paying attention to is the expectancies of our client Mm. and the beliefs of our client. Mm -hmm. And so whatever enhances their expectancies and beliefs, Mm -hmm. we can tune that up. Mm -hmm. And in that level, we become a little bit like those mentalists Mm -hmm. who like sit there and try to read people when they're trying to read their mind. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, you're in love with the woman. Let's see, your name starts A, B, C, D. Mm -hmm. And then the OD starts with D because they're reading the Mm nonverbal cues. Mm -hmm. Mentalists can get a long way with that if they're gifted. Just check out clever Hans. Even a horse can do it at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Even a horse, that's right. Mm -hmm. So if all your energy is looking at reading the client, Mm -hmm. you have an edge over the people that are putting a lot of their energy Mm -hmm. into what kind of bad spirit is it and what exorcism should I pick? Because you're really only dealing with what's the active ingredient, Mm. which is, is your client buying it and are they responding? Right. Mm -hmm. And also because you now know reality is fluid, Mm -hmm. meaning in terms of the spirit. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, let's be careful here. Mm -hmm. If they get a broken bone, you don't think that part of the reality is fluid. You're going to have to set the bone. Right. But when it comes to their mental health and the bad spirit, mm-hmm. that reality is very fluid. Mm-hmm. So you have to be aware of what you what you and I know has made part of reality totally fluid. Mm. And to all the other exorcists, mm-hmm. is pretty solid. Mm. Right. To the degree that we see it as fluid, mm-hmm. we can get creative mm-hmm. in a way that our We not only have extra energy to put into what I call client fit, that's the expectancies, beliefs. Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. Everybody believes that in psychotherapy, but (laughs) we have extra energy, Mm. which should help us get superior results. Mm -hmm. 
but also a whole bunch of the client world and my world just went fluid. Not all of it. If I'm dealing with an anxious person, the idea that their adrenals now are on a hair trigger. And so they live in a different biochemical world than I do, mm -hmm. where their adrenals are going off at the least excuse. Mm -hmm. That's not really constructed anymore. That's mm -hmm. the way their body's operating. Mm -hmm. And I just better be aware mm -hmm. that th they actually live in a different reality than me, where, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where their body is signaling threat in a different way mm -hmm. than maybe my body does. Right. But a big part of their reality went fluid because it went fluid for me. Mm. And the degree to which they're in relationship with me, mm -hmm. I've just made their reality more fluid also. Okay. Is that a little too poetic or did that make sense? No, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I'm following. I, 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 I think that what we're saying here is there's obviously there's constraints uh, in relationship and a differentiation between we need to make between what is a potentially constructive reality? That's why the spirit analogy is really useful, okay? Um, but what this does is it expands the potential fluidity um, and diminishes the reification of a lot of these mental constructs, and that hopefully would afford us the capacity to be more focused on the kinds of change rituals uh, that would, could be charismatically delivered that would get better impact. 100%. Now, the next step beyond picking a smaller, more benign spirit mm -hmm. and having focus on client fit mm -hmm. is you've started making reality more fluid, but you're also aware of the boundary. There's a porous boundary where it's partly constructed and partly mm -hmm. solid, and then there's solidity. When I first met you, I said, thank God for the tree of knowledge because... Mm -hmm you can kind of see where solidity is and where culture and language is, and you've got a picture of it. And, mm -hmm. and I appreciated that. And I told you that, and it is important to have a sense. You can't really get fluid unless you also understand what's still solid. Right. And I'm very aware that constructionists, you know, with language games and structure mm -hmm. of language and, you're, you know, all the outer reality can't be experienced. Literally, it's all in it. I understand all that. Well, I guess nobody understands that perfectly, but I understand. That that right. So, so let's, um, yeah, we can pause on this because it's actually valuable, I think, both from your perspective and from mine. Um, so one of the things that you talk, uh, I like to say, sometimes I engage in an inverted Wittgenstein. Okay. So Wittgenstein's early Wittgenstein is trying to work with Bertrand Russell. And he's trying to get at truth, okay? Sort right. of the picture theory of truth. And it's like, actually, there's some geometric relation between a class, a table, a relationship of specificity. It's pretty actually limited, but you can use analytic language relations to create kind of a picture geometry of logical relations. That's his first tractus, uh, tractitus in relationship to sort of, right. you know. And then he comes along and he's like, well, virtually all of what humans are engaged in, okay, are contextual um, implicit rules that he ends up calling language games, okay? And that these really provide an enormous amount of meaning and structure to the world, but essentially, to use your term, they're essentially constructed, okay? 
based on the rules of a game. It's like chess. Is there, where's the rules of chess? Well, we get together and we say, this is the queen, this is this. That doesn't exist in the universe itself. If you kill us, they're rule dependent. The language games are knower dependent and they're construed as a function of the knower. Okay. So, and that's a the unbelievably set of powerful set of insights. Wittgenstein is arguably one of the most influential philosophers and the shift from a modernist to a postmodernist view really goes through Wittgenstein's language game structure, as well as Berger and Luckman. I would say if you had two people that were really ideologically or two systems that were ideologically influential, be social construction of reality and language game, okay? Well, you talk, what it, it's birth first with justification systems, okay? Yes. And, and, you know, my realization of justification in 1996 is, oh my God, all I do is justify. It's like I'm a fucking, I, like my entire structure, which seems real, actually is just a bunch of justifications, almost delusion belief systems that I just create for myself. Like this is important. This matters. This is true. I hate Republicans. I like Democrats. It's like, oh my God, I'm just a justification confabulating machine. Okay. Notice how all of a sudden reality then drops out. <laughs> <laughs> everything that you think is important all of a sudden is like, wait a minute, it gets all fluid. Okay. And then part of that then set me up to say, well, what isn't justification? Okay. And in a very important way, the mass that I'm pressing on this chair isn't justification. Okay. In a very important way, we're having a conversation that can't be reduced to language per se. There are sound waves that are bouncing around and shit like that. And ultimately, the tree of knowledge says, oh, there's a dimension of complexification called the social construction of knowledge, aka the systems of justification that we verbally get together and agree on, what Berger and Luckman were pointing to. And that sits in an animal world, it sits in a living world, and it sits in a material world. And sure as hell, we can get physicists taking a look at atoms with a particular epistemology and be like, yeah, no, atoms exist. <laughs> yeah. It's not just because we say so. So anyway, there's a particular kind of relation that we need to afford between what is this constructed reality and what is real reality and what's the proper relation. And, and I think both of us afford through our own works and working together is like, oh, yeah, this is a much healthier relation than an extreme constructionist. Everything's, you know, yeah. an extreme postmodernist view or an old modernist view that there's only one truth and we can decipher it all. through. Yeah, logic. yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I said when I first met you is. I was very grateful and acknowledged the really thoughtful work you and maybe some of your colleagues have done in this direction. Because I actually believe that to get fluidity, you also have to understand solidity mm. and you have to understand the boundary space between and they all kind of fit together. But the second step after you start with uh, client fit and getting smaller and more benign spirits, mm is you really have to understand how important deconstruction is. Mm -hmm. And I think Sartre's book, Nausea, is really mm -hmm. helpful here. Mm -hmm. okay. Because to way oversimplify it, he said that his character got nauseous anytime there was an imposition of essence on existence. Mm. I know that's oversimplification, but... I like that. I can go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so somebody who's trying to get an edge has to feel nauseous whenever in the psychotherapy field they can detect somebody who is explaining things mm. as if they're lined up, mixing up fundamental reality and constructive reality. Okay. 
So for example, those superior, brilliant super shrinks mm -hmm. who insist on telling us what they did and not mm -hmm. who they are, mm. you should get nauseous, even though they're much better therapists than I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when somebody sits there and says something about parent skills training or anger management training or DBT, which is basically tools to help affective regulation, mm -hmm. a lot of skill building, you have to be aware of just how profoundly the idea that we're in fundamental reality pervades everything I say and think. And about the only way you can do that is to cultivate an active deconstruction practice. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say, well, I've looked at the research, techniques lack inherent power. Right. But as somebody who believes the research and has been spending time with this, I know for myself, I have to cultivate a deconstruction practice. Mm -hmm. And I like Sartre's idea as a metaphor. Okay. But I need to identify the way people structure their explanations and for their mental health problems and how psychotherapy works. Mm -hmm. I need to literally feel nauseous, mm -hmm. not nauseous, but at least yep. I need to have some internal Mm -hmm. marker when they are trying to seduce me back mm -hmm. into seeing things. So for example, with skills training, skills training is one of the ultimate seductions hmm. because we are all aware, like let's take anger management because it's okay. real simple. Yep. In anger management, we send all these mostly guys into anger management training and they go in and they learn anger management skills. Now, they already know some skills, but they all learn some new skills. Mm -hmm. And generally, when you evaluate these programs, you can get some improvement in terms of ma manifesting anger management. In other words, they control their tempers better. Mm -hmm. And you divide the results into two categories. Category one is they're in a group of people who are trying to control anger management they're all trying to please the other people in the group. Mm -hmm. And so just because they're all motivated and trying really hard mm -hmm. and knowing they're going to see people every week, they control their temper better. Mm -hmm. We understand that's a big part of why they get better. Mm -hmm. But the other part is they're given these new tools, mm -hmm. some of which they never heard. And they come in and they say, I tried the new tool mm -hmm. and it really helped me. Mm -hmm. And they say that every week and mm -hmm. different people say that every week. Mm -hmm. So how is anger management not improved because of skills that are taught? Mm. If you can't answer that question, you don't understand deconstruction mm -hmm. and you're going to crash and burn when it comes to the work that I'm recommending. Okay. Mm. So that's the level of deconstruction you have to have. Okay. So I'm going to try to take apart that particular one. Yeah, that'd be great. Please. Okay. So how many people are taught to control their anger? Answer is everybody. Mm -hmm. When you're parented, parents squash you mm -hmm. when you have temper tantrums and teach you skills and require you to have skills. When you go to school, mm -hmm. they do the same thing. The military at work everybody is taught to control their anger. 
and everybody has anger management skills. Mm. Okay? okay? So let's say how many ways are there to open a jar? Well, I can use my hands to open a jar. I could get a pair of pliers. I could tap the edge on a on a wooden countertop. Run some water over it. <laughs> run some hot water over it. It's true that there are lots of ways of opening jars, but when I have ways of opening jars and I'm not using them, mm -hmm. it's not because I don't already have the skills. Mm -hmm. Going to anger management training, you either use the skills you already have to please people or use new skills they give you. But the real problem is you chose not to use skills you already have. Mm -hmm. and by sending you to anger management, it's not the skills you learned. Mm. It's the fact that your motivation mm. to control now your I can access this. Mm -hmm. Can access it. I choose to access it. Choose to, right. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I already have the skills. How many people with anger management? Now there are some people with anger management skills that'll mouth off at a cop or a judge, mm -hmm. but most of them got there because they mouthed off at their wife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know and. Mm in other situations or their kid. Right. In other words, they were already had anger management skills that they were choosing not to use. Mm. You send them in there, and if you think about it, that's parallel to affective regulation, mm -hmm. assertiveness training, mm. and cognitive therapy for depression. Everybody is trained with a lot of skills already. And how do we know it? Because if the people really didn't have the skills and we added them, then skills would have inherent power. Mm. Uh -huh. Right? Yep. If I really didn't know how to control my anger and you taught me, uh -huh. and a lot of the people in that class really didn't know how to do it, and you are a teacher and you taught uh -huh. us, then when we did these studies, uh -huh. great skills would right. come in as inherent because for me, anything I don't know how to do has inherent power. Mm -hmm. The fact that all this psychotherapy research says it doesn't have inherent power says that everybody already has skills. We don't have all the skills. We might only know three ways to open the jar, not the other mm -hmm. two. But really, we know how to open jars, even mm -hmm. though we don't know every way to open jars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You could also ask your husband to open the jar for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Maybe okay. there's 11 ways to open jars, and I right. only need four. Right. But that's not the problem with why I don't open jars. Right, right. Mm. You have to be able to deconstruct why the book about five love languages is really going to mix you up, even though it helps lots of people. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. Every time somebody says, what's your love language, I have to feel nausea. Yeah. Even right. though I know it helped the person to read the love language book. Right. Yes. Um, so, well, are you vulnerable uh, to, or, or where are you in terms of just applying your own critique to yourself? Okay. So we're starting to send dialogue about, hey, if we reconstrue this in relationship to constructive reality, we'll train people to be more fluid uh, they'll be clear about this. They'll be emphasizing this. We'll cultivate a particular charisma. And then 
but we don't know yet whether that kind of set of attitudes is better for outcomes or do we? So I have spent some time analyzing super shrinks. Mm -hmm. Like I was, you know, you think Carl Whitaker or uh, Fairley and provocative therapy, obviously Erickson. And this kind of analysis works pretty well at explaining what they're doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, does it, well, let me just add the one more thing. Okay. 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 So you understand deconstruction is an active ongoing process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that one of the most important areas is this concept of skills. Mm -hmm. And skills rests on the idea underlying it that people lack skills. Mm -hmm. That they're using to use your the mm -hmm. Jeffrey Smith, mm -hmm. you know, chronic maladaptive, entrenched maladaptive mm -hmm. patterns that are remediated by providing better patterns. You have to be nauseous at that stuff. Right. Okay, now there's one other thing though that I, and this will fits really well with you talk. So if you think about a cultural reality, mm -hmm. a cultural reality, you have undifferentiated reality that a culture forms into its unique shape. Okay. Here's Western reality, the samurai reality, Australian Aboriginal reality, and it's all bound together by a net, mm. a net meaning a structure of meaning that unites mm. each person with definitions of honor and femininity and duty and all the stuff. Part of those is justification about. systems. Exactly. Thank you. And I usually call it the nomological net, the net that holds everything in shape, that nomos meaning meaning or ordering. Yep. But I like justification systems just fine also. The reason I like the concept of a net is because like an erosion net, if you have a, a new uh, embankment that's been cut for a road, until mm -hmm. the plants grow there, you have to hold it with a net because mm. when the rain comes, it just starts flowing. Mm. And that's the way stress hits reality. Hmm. You don't have a net to hold it in place. Mm -hmm. So now hmm. when you're sitting there with this idea that, Part of reality is fluid, part is semi-fluid, and part is solid, you know, what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. You're going to really be paying close attention to how people make the fluid part solid. Mm. In other words, the strands of the net, the yes. justification systems, mm -hmm. which is a great name for it also. I, I love that. Mm -hmm. And I like it because it's active. You know, that's what's cool about your model is you're doing, you know, next sort of sounds like it's there, mm -hmm. but really it's more active. Mm -hmm. And I like justification systems for the, the, the net, the, the systemic story. net, though, as a holding structure. I mean, they're both useful. They're both fun. And I also both like narrative therapy, which says mm -hmm. we tell stories that organize. Those are really good. They're all metaphors. They're all useful. They're all cool. mm -hmm. Yeah. But think about this net for a second. If what you've been doing with your clients is figuring out what's fluid for them and what makes it solid and how you're going to make it fluid because we're in the change business. Change business means they have to get fluid. Mm -hmm. If you think about two kinds of change, Apollonian and Dionysian, and these are terms I stole from Nietzsche, okay. who talked about 
cultures. There's yeah. Apollonian cultures, the culture is which is ordered, lawful, structured, delay gratification. That's Apollonian forces. Mm -hmm. Dionysian are creative, spontaneous, flowy, present, idiosyncratic. Okay. Those terms are pretty Nietzsche made it famous, yep. but mm -hmm. they're common sense. So in the change world, we want fluidity, Dionysian, mm -hmm. because Apollonian means <laughs> that the you know are stuck. Pathology stays the same. Mm -hmm. So we're we're spending a lot of time. We have to get fluid before we can get our clients fluid. Now there is Apollonian change and Dionysian change. Apollonian change is inside the net. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I tell you to go to the gym and start lifting more and doing more reps, you know, that's gonna be Apollonian change. It's ordered, okay. it's incremental, it's logical. Similarly, if I tell you to use uh, desensitization to a snake phobia, very Apollonian change. But if I hypnotize you, and regress you back to before you got scared of snakes mm. and you come out able to handle snakes because uh -huh. you're existing, that's an altered state. Uh -huh. That's magical. Uh -huh. And we, all, we already know that human beings have categories for altered state change versus Apollonian change. Uh -huh. So people have a category called, I had cancer and I got terrified that I felt like God spoke to me and I reorganized my whole life. And mm -hmm. human beings have a sacred, secular split. Okay. This is Allah, Mircea Eliade, who's done all the work in this area, mm. the early work anyway. Mm -hmm. And you can talk about Changes that happen in an altered state where human beings believe it's legitimate to have quick, rapid, long-lasting change because it's in the realm of magic or spirit. Therapists that understand what's fluid and what's solid start also understanding what altered states are, which is not hypnosis, even though hypnosis is a form of an altered state. It means that you create experiences that are outside the net. Mm. So Frank Farrelly, with his book, Provocative Therapy, used no hypnosis. Mm. Did you ever read that book? I did not. I'm not no, I don't know that book, actually. Well, he's, uh, it's very entertaining. And uh, I'm not going to take too much time. But okay. when Milton Erickson did a lot of stuff with hypnosis, right. but he also did a ton of stuff with no hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he jarred a person out of their normal Definitely. state. He did a lot of frame breaking for folks. <laughs> he really screwed with their yeah. <laughs> sense of reality and really cast them adrift pretty often. When you have somebody cast adrift and you can recognize when they're cast adrift, then there's an opportunity to do something that creates rapid, profound change. Mm. Most of the super shrinks mm -hmm. had an intuitive or conscious ability to know how to kick people into that state mm -hmm. and what to do when they were in that state. Okay. That's the actual definition of a super shrink. Mm. 
And it comes with understanding where fluidity is and where fluidity isn't. Nice. And that an altered state isn't just close your eyes, imagine you're at the beach and your hands are warm. That's good. That is an altered state. When I drive my car and I don't remember that I'm driving, sure, I'm in an altered state, but it isn't transformative. But when you understand why anger management therapy and teaching techniques isn't how they get better, mm. you get an insider approach mm -hmm. to understanding fluidity, where the net is. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yes, and, and certainly some people in beliefs, uh, belief value semantic network will talk about frozen and melting beliefs you know and like uh, like yes. ice in a particular way yes. uh, so i'll use that metaphor also and i mean obviously it goes right with fluidity but we have we're walking around with our frozen structures of frame and then all of a sudden you can melt those and then all of a sudden you have to get reconsolidated in a particular way and then the translation or transition of melting to reconsolidate opens up all sorts of potential shifts um, and if you know how to do that and then cultivate that um, that opens up a lot of potential in terms of how we might leverage change. 100%. And you have to work hard at deconstruction. Mm -hmm. To understand to how to, to see, right. You know, to, to be able to really feel the fluidity. Right. right. Now, I don't think, I think that is teachable. Mm. Then the last part is what I talk about cultivating individual charisma. That's a different category. Okay. You, you and I only have a few minutes left, and yeah. it's really well that we just stay with this concept of constructed versus fundamental right. fluidity and altered states. Well, what I'd like to do then, maybe as well, we'll punt this down the road and maybe have a second conversation if you're willing to come back, um, because I think you've laid a really interesting groundwork, okay? And, and as, you, as you know, I agree with virtually all of it up to this point. And then the question is, I would like to decide to see whether, as you know, we talked about this on the theory of knowledge listserv. Uh, I was president of the CEPI, Society uh, for Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. I wanted to consolidate the common factors view, okay? But I did it in some ways that essentially potentially reify some essences <laughs> that made you nauseous. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. And then I want to come back and see whether or not I have slucked I snuck in essences ineffectually, okay, and then and and pay, prayed to my God of reification in ways that I should have been much more fluid about. Or if it's also the case that I'm seeing a particular line, okay, through the ontology of human mental behavior into neurotic conditions, all right, that is a little bit more um, real, specifiable, generalizable, and objective than the spirits, okay. So. Uh, so that's one of the things that I'd like to come back and then dialogue about in relationship to whether or not entrenched maladaptive patterns, and if there is this semi-permeable structure that we could actually locate ourselves around between, hey, this is the way behavioral investment systems actually work as animals with some degree of reliability. We understand certainly operant theory, things along those lines. This are systems of justification. Can we get an ontology of this thing that actually could then go with what you're saying in relationship to how to train therapists, but guide them a little bit better on the fluid, semi-permeable and real dimensions. And then could that help uh, map this territory with, you know, more utility, flexibility, effectiveness? Yeah, I'm actually not just sympathetic to that goal, which of course I am. 
Uh, I've spoken to you briefly about the way recently I've been influenced by what's coming down in behavioral genetics and particularly Robert Plowman's book, yep. Blueprint. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet. I haven't read it. You and I conversed about it and it's got some powerful things to say. Uh, if that stuff holds up, we are going to really be thinking <laughs> thinking through our field uh, in the context of the new behavioral genetics findings. And, uh, you know, the most important stuff, of course, is he's asserting that they actually can now predict from a genotype things like IQ, doing well in school, susceptibility to mental illness, and a host of other factors. This is going to be an ethical nightmare for the generation right below us because uh, it's achievable right now. And lots of people are going to be talking about that. That's not our purpose, I don't think, even though that's a huge topic. It's an important but, but what he says about how genetic structures psychopathology really goes to what you're saying about uh, what you were trying to achieve with CEPI. Mm -hmm. And I think the genetic stuff, which to me is, of course, fundamental reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know how much I feel like we need to defer. I don't believe you can get fluidity if you don't have your feet solidly planted in you don't like to call it fundamental. What do you call it? Naturalistic? Uh, naturalistic, yeah. I mean, yeah. the reason, right, for me, fundamental and foundational get to sort of core ontic claims of like, you know, what is energy? What's the ultimate essence of where we come from? And I'm kind of agnostic in relationship to the foundational structure, but, yeah. you know, whatever. That's a, Those are all... No, I don't I'm think happy that's to refer to you um, on, um, on those but, but basically, uh, right, there's a foundational naturalistic, I can say, the foundational naturalistic reality around standard theory of elementary particle physics, the core theory there, general relativity affords us, you know, there are four fundamental forces. We can say with a fair yeah. degree of specificity, we can also say it's incomplete and there's a lot of mystery too in relationship to that. That's where I come in sort of agnostic, like what dark energy, dark matter remain a little bit mysterious and this, you know, fifth force, whatever, but uh, go, yeah. Well, I think what Plowman is offering is a road forward that lines up with your goals as CEPI president. And uh, I can summarize, not now we're out of time, but uh, I can summarize his most important findings in simple language that'll let us just, I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy reading the book when you have time, but, uh, but this is something that is really important that we keep a very clear sense of this naturalistic reality and the foundation that we're operating inside of. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll say one of the things that I think is a great crime for our technical knowledge that we haven't specified is the importance, for example, of trait neuroticism in this whole process. Okay, so trait neuroticism in relation, which is basically the way in which and, you know, how much of this is genetics and that, but a substantive point is genetically loaded that gives you a potential, depending, especially depending on what your environmental experiences are, although we're not clear exactly unless they're trauma, or we know serious uh, repeated trauma, whatever sets the stage for a particular type of trait neuroticism that solidifies in adolescence to young adult. Uh, and then this essentially is a measurement of your negative affect system and to the extent to which it idles, you know, where, how reactive, how active, that type of thing. That structure for, in terms of technical knowledge, that, that, that we haven't told everybody, 
<laughs> that anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, sense of vulnerability, all the internalizing conditions sit on a particular behavioral genetic foundation in terms of technical knowledge. Like yes. that is now that, and that's what I look forward to reading the book. And then I'll bring some of those kinds of reflections to, and then maybe in four months or so, you and I will get back together um, and we'll pick up this conversation. I'll have read the book. We'll see where you are in your thinking and we'll come back and see about, you know, if we, we could co-construct uh, what I said in relationship to sort of a common core of psychotherapy, what you were saying in terms of the core skills and fluidity, what Plumman is saying in relationship to behavioral genetics and see if we can paint a picture uh, that is somewhat coherent at least and then orients the field at least in a way we think it might be. Yeah, I like that. That makes really good sense. And when you do read it, you'll see that Plumman has done a nice job with that uh, trait neuroticism yeah. stuff okay. in a way that uh, is going to be very helpful to our field. Lovely, lovely. All right, friend. Well, hey, Stephen, thanks so much for coming and sharing uh, your particular views. I, I really think that the field of psychotherapy, at the very least, folks, if you train psychotherapists like me, you got to look in the mirror, be like, what are we doing? And if we ask our clients to be like, hey, you're in denial because you rationalize and you do all this other stuff. <laughs> I don't think we can at least hear this without at least some reflection on the dissonance that this induces. And then I think there's a lot of data here that says we need to fundamentally rethink the field. I think you're a pioneer in that. I think you make the case very powerfully. And um, I hope the field listens and, and evolves accordingly. Thanks, Greg. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Look forward to our future conversation.